This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News. Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. It's 5 o'clock on Saturday. I hope you're hungry. How are you doing, Maroki Tong? I'm hungry, Andre. <laughs> Aren't you always? <laughs> you know, this is the show where we, we we sort of loosely put together themes when we put these shows together and, and try to stick to it. Sometimes they're a little looser than others. But I think the theme for today is, why isn't it spring yet? We- I don't know, Andre, but I think it's because we know that Canada always... Um, never fails to betray us around this time of year. I know. It's one of my favorite memes that f- pops around the internet is like the six seasons of like Canada or the six seasons of spring where it's like first spring, fool spring, spring of deceit, mud season, then finally spring and then summer. And it's just like we got, I think, the fool spring a couple weeks ago. Um, but the thing that had me thinking, and, and, and maybe this is wishful thinking that Hopefully, you and I, we can will the nice weather into the the GTA is to start talking about patios. I know when the full spring came a couple weeks ago, I may have dropped everything I did in the middle of the day just so I could find a patio to enjoy for a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I think like there's that perhaps like desire and desperation that we all fine when the first like rays of sunshine come through and we're like we are so vitamin d deprived and we just need that light on our skin but you know i think the interesting thing is is i thought by now that we would have become more resilient especially over the last couple years where we needed to do more outdoor socially distanced gatherings that we should be going out patio um enjoyment year round like do you do we not think that sometimes in the fall we push patio season until like the last vestiges of sunshine are gone and we're huddled in a winter coat over like a tiny flame on a picnic table outside so why can't we do the opposite like do you think that there are patios existing around right now that we can already be taking advantage of um i haven't really seen any out on on the out and about but i also completely agree with you like it was one of these things where i was going through my my facebook memories recently and i had some really great photos i i used to have a very large patio in uh midtown toronto where during like peak pandemic when we weren't supposed to be anywhere near each other i would have friends over and we would be on opposite sides of the patio and we got takeout like Thai food, takeout pho, and we would put a bottle of wine in the middle of the patio with uh, um, Clorox wipes around them. And it was like there were days it was snowing. So we drank a lot of white wine because, you know, more conducive. But yeah, like it's the whole thing where I, I was hoping that during the pandemic, our metal would get a little more resolved and that that year-round patio culture would take hold but i guess when push comes to shove we just we just aren't in love with the with the cold patios Mm. well and then to be fair i suppose it would take quite a bit of effort to you know winter proof patios for our enjoyment when and you know in a in i one thing i've heard this last year is that we have become more and more seasonal dine-outers. So if it's winter, there's just naturally less people going out um, during the winter months that you're just going to see less people going out to the restaurant. So why would you even expand that into a patio? But that being said, there's some amazing 
you know, heated patios that exist around the city. And that's usually the first thing I look for when I'm trying to just enjoy like a little bit of early spring patio weather. Um, I actually, a couple weekends ago, I went to Parallel on Geary Street. Mm. And that, um, is it Geary Lane or Geary? It's probably Geary Lane. They've, um, on the West End, and they've really, like, that, first of all, that entire area has kind of gotten hopping over the last few years. But Parallel is this awesome Middle Eastern place with a lot of kind of pantry takeaway options. And their patio has the most amazing, like, overhead heaters, and it's fully enclosed. So it was raining outside, and we got to still enjoy the patio. You know, I, I think... I'm as much as like I said, I was hoping that that culture year round culture would take hold. I'm definitely someone who has gotten a little soft over the past couple of years. And, um, you know, I think it was that cold January in 2022, like where it was like the record cold January where it wasn't like we had like a really deep freeze of like minus 20. It was just like it was minus 10 the entire month where it was just like, nah, nope, this is too cold when, uh, when the bottle of rosé on the patio is freezing solid in January, it's too cold even for Andre. <laughs> but isn't that what those heaters are for? That's why I talked about <laughs> Parallel's overhead heaters. <laughs> you know, I still haven't found a, a great patio. I, th I think a lot of the places that I usually frequent, um, maybe the patios are just a little too small to make that investment. Because that is one of the things where investing in having the propane burners, like you have to pay for the heaters or you have to pay for the electrical heaters and then you have to pay for the fuel to run them like i i do have sympathy for the restaurant with where like you said like people are spending a little bit less money so you know i think i'm waiting for my favorite patio to open and i think the thing is when you take a look at the big lists like in places like blog to or toronto life when they list off like the, be the best patios they seem to always recommend places that are like a huge party like there was that massive um patio on richmond street that was really sort of party central for a, a few years where all the events were there they had a big screen there and it's just like i look at a patio like that and it's just like you know you're on a patio with a hundred people you usually have to wait forever for a server to come by and like yeah the the energy's great and it's nice and bumping but for me like my favorite patios are a little bit more smaller and more intimate and it's just like you when you can get that European feel here. So um, also on Richmond Street, my favorite patio is at Grand Cru Deli, which is literally like, I think there's room for two tables out there. And sometimes they'll put another two out on the sidewalk as well. Um, and I mean, the fact that it's on Richmond and not on Queen Street means it's a little out of the way. It's a little bit more secluded. And to me, I think I think what we need is a list of like the, the best small and secluded patios. I don't know. What, what about you, Maroki? I, I'm of two minds on this. Um, I actually remember looking to see if Grand Crudeli had a patio back in the day. And when I saw the Google image photo of the two tables, I immediately was like, so I guess not, was my thought process. Because I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't think there's almost like a 90% chance that I'm not even going to get myself a patio spot if I go visit them during a busier time of day. Um, so like to that regard, even though I love some intimate patios and I definitely love the back ones so that they are not street facing. Um, I remember, you know, now it's called Florette, but back when it was Nui Social, I remember they had a front patio if people want to sit out, but they also had a more intimate back patio as well. That was also very secluding, closed and closed in. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes when they were that small, I was very hesitant to even shoot my shot because I wondered if I was going to get a seat at all. Right. To that you didn't point where be, like, yeah. it might be, 
You didn't want to be yeah, confined so to in eating inside when you really just wanted to eat, eat or have a drink al fresco. Exactly. So sometimes it was like it was easier to find a place with a larger patio because at that point I'm guaranteed, you know, that, uh, you know, that love, like I'm going to be guaranteed a spot. And I think sometimes too, you know, I love my small back patios, but sometimes I do want to sit in the sun. And I find that the larger patios are often the ones that get the most sunshine as well because they're not usually enclosed or fenced in. <laughs> I hate that you're just like punching holes in my in my argument. I thought for sure you would be on board with the <laughs> smaller intimate ones. But I mean, I'm also someone who loves loves the sunshine and I'm fortunate enough to have a, a patio at, at my house as well. And I've got it pretty well decked out. Like, I mean, the first... Uh, I guess it's just the thing too is I I as as much as I'm a consummate extrovert and love entertaining when I have people over when I go out to eat maybe I just want to be left alone and and put in the corner. <laughs> I mean, you know me, I am an introvert and I love being left alone and I think sometimes in a larger space too you can lose yourself in a crowd. Versus in an intimate space with four or five tables, I'm like, I know you. I can see you. You can see me. We have no choice but to hear each other and look at each other from across the room. And there's no anonymity there. And maybe that's why sometimes I like the open space. Coming up after the break, uh, like we're always looking for lists and really great things to share on the show. And uh, I found a list of the best gourmet food stores. But before we get into that, um, you got to share an experience with me that we're going to talk about right after the break, which is, um, I don't know, I I'm still not sure if I'm the weird one that this is how I do some grocery shopping, but uh, we'll find out after the break. On 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. So last week, Andre Pru, you reached out to me asking if I wanted to place an order, or at least join in on an order with you from a place called Fornum in Mason. And I had this moment of pure excitement because I was like, wait, wasn't that the supermarket that Top Chef World contestants were shopping from in London? Yeah, Maroki Tong, you got to take part in a ritual I've been doing for, ooh, I guess a few years now. Um I think I'm a bit of an odd duck that one of my favorite things to do when I travel is to check out what's in the grocery stores. Um, when I made that road trip to California, I did some grocery shopping at uh, some Mexican grocery stores in Arizona and came back with like 10 different kinds of chipotle peppers and adobo sauce. And um, I've been fortunate enough to travel to France quite a few times. And as the resident snob, it's probably no surprise to anybody here that I generally come back with a suitcase of French delicacies that adorn my kitchen. Um, but I am addicted to Fortnum and Mason tea. And I order it once a year, enough to last me for the full year. But it's like $45 shipping to get a bunch of tea shipped over from England. Fortnum and Mason's a, a, an English brand. And um, yeah, I try to get as many people to join me as possible so I can cut down on those shipping costs. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's pretty smart. Um, it's $45 shipping is no joke, especially for some tea. And I know I said I I challenged the notion that Fortnum & Mason has the best tea by bringing over some really great Chinese product at some foreseeable future. Yeah. I guess it, yeah, I, I guess it is a fascinating thing because I've never really thought about ordering my food from a place abroad. Even if when I travel, I love bringing back foodie-based souvenirs, as you said, you know, like uh, a suitcase full of goodies. But once I'm home, I often don't 
think about shopping abroad, I usually do try and shop locally. And you showed me a list recently, Andre, on Blogtio, kind of the best gourmet food shops in Toronto, which I guess, you know, probably do bring in some products from around the world. Yeah, you know, I'm going to fully admit that uh, you made me feel a little bit guilty at the fact that I do still order (laughs) some premium stuff online. But like at the same time, like it's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I'm sitting in my kitchen and and doing like steak au poivre with the green peppercorns that I order from abroad like every day. Like for me, it's it's my fancy cooking. Like we we, everyone who's listening to the show anytime knows that I love to entertain. But when I need to fill in the gaps for the stuff that I can't get uh, shipped to me or that I don't need to, like, I actually really, like, I really love this list. Like, it's it's one of these things where, like, I love looking at the lists made by all these publications to see what's missing. Because, you know, you and I were always looking for off the beaten path. And I think a lot of the restaurants that we've profiled on this show so far don't usually make it to these lists. But when I looked at this list from BlogTO, it was just like, huh, they got it right. They really mm-hmm. got it right. Mm-hmm. And I guess there was some interesting commentary that had me um, have a moment of reflection, I guess, in oh, some yeah. ways, because I know you and I, Andre, like, we are both foodie lovers, we don't mind spending the extra dollars when it comes to dining out, you know, that's sort of where we decide to spend our discretionary funds, so to say. And I think, you know, we've both certainly talked about perhaps bottles of wine that the maybe most listeners may turn an eyebrow up at. And you know, there was some commentary because, you know, like I said, this is a gourmet food list. And, yes. and there were some comments out there that basically challenged um, whether this is a list that should be shared, you know, widely with Torontonians because it may be higher than average price for some of those foods. And I I wonder, I, it's one of those things where like I do try and check myself regularly. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm very fortunate to be in a position in my life these days where I can certainly go and buy a fancier block of cheese and i can certainly tell you that even as early as like a you know four or five years ago when i did want to buy cheese it was not from like the gourmet section of a supermarket right and if i was buying cheese i i would look at the different bricks and i would decide to buy the smaller brick because it was a dollar less like that's how frugal i was and i'm very fortunate to be in the opposite place now but again i think i think we all have different places where we choose to spend our money for some people it's going to be new shoes or a nice purse and for me it's food and comic books Uh, i mean that's the thing for me is it it definitely is food and you know i think like many canadians um you know i've i have felt a little bit of the pinch certainly not as bad as other people but it it is one thing to acknowledge some of the comments on this were just like okay you're talking about these gourmet food stores and i guess at the time the article was posted it was placed right next to an article about food bank usage being up and I mean, that's something that really should be acknowledged. And it, it is also one of those things where I don't feel like our government is talking about it enough. It's a lot of pleasantries about like, yeah, 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 we're getting inflation under control where, you know, uh, people are really struggling to put food on the table. But, you know, I, I think having acknowledged the situation, like what's going on, uh, I'm comfortable that we can go into this conversation to talk about our favorite uh, gourmet stores. Because um, like I said, I think there were um, one, two, three... There are four places on this list, and I'll, I'll get like we'll get right into them. Um, Italy, Toronto for one, Cheese Boutique, mm. Fiesta Farms, and Good Cheese. These are all very good shops. They're they're favorites of mine. I go out of my way to buy specialty ingredients from all of them. The reason I go out of my way though isn't because I got cash to burn. 
it's because these places are priced fairly. And yeah, it's not no frills or fresh co-pricing. But if you're looking for a nice piece of Parmesan cheese, going to Italy or Cheese Boutique, you're going to get a fair price on it and not have to pay the price of some of the other retailers on on this list as well that I don't want to necessarily single out because there are places in Toronto. I mean, there's one stretch on Young Street. They're called the Five Thieves um, colloquially by the people in the neighborhood because of their out, outrageous pricing. Huh. I didn't even know that. And I feel like offline, I need to find out what this place is just so I can wander there that my, by myself. But I think, um, I think another thing too is sometimes it's just an opportunity to be a bit of a tourist um, mm -hmm. through food, right? Mm -hmm. Like if I'm not traveling to Italy anytime soon, I, you know, I only actually visited Italy for the very first time in the last few months. Mm. And I didn't leave with very much. And there, frankly, there's a lot there. You can leave with substantially a lot more. But it was just even fascinating for me to wander through the prosciutto section mm -hmm. and just see different types of prosciutto that exist. Like, like for me, that's just, it's so interesting. Like the culture, the the love and the and what's behind it. And a lot of the people there actually genuinely are super passionate about it. I remember standing from the you know, in front of the the cheese display and they have people behind there, you know, they're the ones who cut the cheese for you. And they were happy <laughs> to kind of talk about, you know, there was one that was like a, a chamomile wrapped cheese and they were happy to just cut a bit off for me to try so that I get a little bit of a chance to experience something new and novel and interesting. And there's an educational aspect of it that I really enjoy that way. You know, I'm a child. I couldn't help but giggle when you said cut the cheese. Um, but also I think you hit the nail on the head. Like when I set foot in Italy or cheese boutique or Fiesta farm or good cheese, um, I'm not walking out of the store with my week's worth of groceries. I'm going there for the specialty ingredients. You know, I'm buying my staples at a regular grocery store, um, and then filling in the gaps. If I want a really nice piece of prosciutto that you mentioned to work with a really nice piece of cheese. Um, but yeah, I guess just going back, if you're looking for some specialty ingredients, Italy, Cheese Boutique, Fiesta Farms in the middle of the city, and Good Cheese are all places worth going out of your way to check out. If I could give one piece of feedback to this article is that I wish that there were a few gourmet spots that weren't um, so Eurocentric. Like, you know, there was a lot of Italian focus on this particular article. And mm -hmm. there's, an, um, you know, there's a couple of fish markets in Toronto. Um, Yuzuki Market Downtown Toronto comes to mind that does incredible fresh seafood that they sell you know to restaurants for making sushi and sashimi out of and they actually do like bento boxes and sashimi and sushi sets that you can take away as well and i've heard amazing things about that so i would love to see spots like that and maybe some places that focus on like korean food and 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 chinese food and maybe even like mexican and jamaican uh markets if they do exist around toronto and kind of pull them to the forefront as well i think that's a good call um coming up after the break we are going to go back to the land of pizza, speaking of gourmet land. We are going to talk to a man who, over the course of his career writing a PhD, has tasted over 700 slices of pizza in the GTA. I think that's super important. That there's a lot of storytelling, so stick around, um, and we'll be right back on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Andre Prude, do you remember that a few weeks ago we talked at length about pizza? You know, Maroki Tong, I don't think I could ever get sick of talking about pizza. This is something I spent a lot of time thinking about. It's always 
an opportunity for me to give a shameless plug to my prairie roots and to remind people that prairie style pizza is very much a thing. Special shout out to Houston pizza. But I was reading the news this week and I found someone who definitely loves pizza more than I do so much that he is in fact a doctor of pizza, or at least that's what I gathered from what I read. Uh, And we are joined by uh, Dr. Alex Hughes. Alex, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing very well? I I knew we would eventually come back to the subject of pizza, Alex, because Andre and I just could not talk enough about it. And I think we need to ask you the million dollar question. What made you decide to get a PhD around pizza? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm a historian by training and uh, my PhD is actually in history, Um, but I actually came to write a dissertation about pizza. And how I got to pizza is quite a long story. Um, I've, as a historian, I've always been interested in different uh, cultural elements of history. Um, So my master's work was actually on U.S. uh, history in Disneyland Park um, in California. (laughs) And when I came in to start a PhD, um, I was actually working on the U.S. Navy in popular culture. But it was midway through my first year. I had started taking Canadian history, which I hadn't done since, you know, like second year of my undergraduate. And my supervisor said to me, hey, maybe you seem to be liking Canadian history. Maybe there's a new dissertation topic you can come up with. And I went home that night and ultimately ended up watching this documentary on the different styles of pizza in Italy. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I read the book um, called The Donut by another Toronto historian, uh, Steve Penfold. Um, And he did like a historical study of donut shops in Canada. And I thought, man, that's fascinating. Plus this like documentary I just watched and I went, maybe there's something with pizza. Maybe pizza can be used as a lens to understand the histories of everyday people. And? It did become that, Um, you know, I ended up spending the next few years researching and eating pizza and using pizza as a lens to explore the histories of consumption, uh, post-war society, culture, suburbanization, um, ethnicity in Toronto, Ontario and Buffalo, New York between 1950 and 1990. Okay, so I mean... You're talking about a lot of like the storytelling, which I mean, you can get from doing phone calls, going and visiting restaurants, sitting down with people and talking to them. The headline in Toronto Life featuring your story says that you ate 712 slices of pizza for your thesis. How did the eating eating of 700 slices of pizza factor into your research? Recently, everybody's picked up on what is actually a third appendix to, you know, a dissertation of over 300 pages of history. Um, Everybody seemed to like the last page, which um, was just a fun little thing I did along the way over five and a half years where I just tracked how many slices of pizza I was eating per month. Um, So, I mean, I guess that's kind of an exciting thing. Researching pizza ended up taking me to two different cities. And on top of that, I, with a, such a unique research topic, I was invited to um, like Pizza Expo in Las Vegas or Canadian Pizza Summit. And so some of these pathways exposed me to a lot of different uh, pizza along the way. I think it was actually important. Like I actually, you know, I know it was a fun thing and I know probably media headliners love to grab the shiny thing as opposed to a lot, you know, a lot of the other important research that you did. But 
I think tasting, you know, tasting the parts of history is part of what probably guides your process along to determining some of the conclusions that you made. I remember, you know, the conversations about how pizza was made in a certain way because tomatoes couldn't be um, brought in at a certain period, like certain time, or if, you know, if, like, let's say the Italian Nona's were going against commercially made mass produced pizzas and coming against like the, the McDonald's and, and the pizza pizzas of the time, then you almost have to say, well, I have to taste this to see if there's proof in the pudding there. So I think there's a reason to taste that much pizza. I know one of the things that resonate with me when you're saying about the stories too, is one thing I speak a lot about is Chinese Canadian cuisine and how that is in some is some ways an authentic form of Chinese food that is cultivated by, you know, the early immigrants um, to Canada from China and it just kind of evolved into its own cuisine and that it's not considered like fake Chinese food by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, I don't know if I'm segueing to this question, okay, but I remember, you know, when we were all talking about the diversity of pizza in Toronto and that there's even a general so pizza, I was thinking to myself, I was like, was that a Chinese Canadian pizza that came here? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a small tidbit that maybe you could just like tell me for my own interest. So, so general so pizza is, that's a very recent thing that just popped up within the past few weeks, but you are hitting the Shows nail what on I the know head there. Pizza. No, you're hitting the nail on the head there. That um, there, there's this concept of ethnic economies at the basis of my uh, dissertation work, and it's the process whereby new immigrant groups are excluded from mainstream society or economic um, participation, and they need to carve out industries to work in. And often this is niche industries, but in the case of both Chinese Canadian and Italian Canadian immigrants, this came to be uh, things like the pizza industry. And ultimately pizza is modified in North America and in Toronto based on the availability of local ingredients and to appeal to the non-Italian community. What most people don't realize is the first place non-Italians were actually consuming pizza in Toronto was in their homes. And they were using like home recipes or the Chef Boyardee pizza kit to produce pizza. And to be honest, a lot of these recipes were pretty horrible. They're one of the earliest pizza recipes in Toronto um, was in the star in about 1954. Oh, wow. And it tells, uh, tells to put uh, blood sausage on pizza. And you can only imagine how disgusting that is. Ultimately, non-Italians started to uh, look to the Italian community to produce pizza um, that was better than they could make at home. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I guess maybe a question then is if, like, obviously we've looked to the Italian community for foundation of what they're doing. And, you know, there's some clear, I guess, rules or guidelines to what makes a pizza a pizza but we take a look at where we are in 2023 now and you know like we said earlier general toast chicken butter chicken pizza like these are all things that you can find on menus virtually anywhere like at what point did we see that while you're talking about maybe pizza becoming a way in for marginalized communities that it took this broader turn and it became um you know a really accessible point of fusion for other cultures cuisines on the in the market i think from its origins pizza has always been um, a site of mixing um one of the first pizzas or what we understand as pizza was the soldiers of darius the great in persia that were cooking a flatbread on their shields um you know pizza is dough sauce and cheese but 
really it's a delivery device for whatever ingredients um, that are local and available around you. Um, so, you know, in a multicultural city like Toronto, that's where we've seen these other uh, cuisines coming into pizza and trying new toppings on top. But I think pizza has always been about the availability of what's around you and can be modified for any dietary preference or taste profile as well. As we wrap up the segment, then maybe this is a very, very loaded question since we've just, you know, very much discussed at length that we have a massive, you know, um, cultural mosaic. And that's sort of what makes, uh, you know, the history of pizza great and where it is now, especially in Toronto. What do you think is like the pizza identity of Toronto? Like, are we thin or thick crust? And I, you know, are we here for pineapples on pizza, especially since I found out since reading um, one of your articles that it's made by it's, it was invented by a Canadian. Toronto really is a thick crust city, but beyond that, Toronto has really come to claim so many different pizza styles as its own. Um, be it you know the pineapple on a Hawaiian pizza is a very Canadian style of pizza. Finding you know almost every Italian style of pizza is a very Toronto uh, style of pizza as well. You know, it's. I don't think Toronto pizza can be defined the same way a New York can, or even like some of the disciplinary rules that exist in Italy for like Neapolitan style pizzas. I think Toronto pizza style is a hybrid pizza style. <laughs> right on, Alex. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this very important research. And uh, hopefully we see maybe future pizza research from you down the road. I don't know if you're working on anything else exciting in the in the food scene, but thank you for taking the time to join Tasting Together today. Thanks for having me. Well, after thinking about nice, salty, gooey pizza, I could probably wash it down with something to drink. And it was lovely spring in the last couple of weeks. And since then, it's been cold again. And we yeah. just really want a little taste of spring. So coming up after the break, we're going to take a look with our resident other drink friend, Danny Longo, about what's um, coming down the line for the LCBO to the market. We recently had a chance to get a sneak peek at what's coming up for the spring. That's coming up on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Is it spring yet? Maroki, is it spring yet? Is it spring yet? I mean, I mean, in the most Canadian way possible, Andre, yes, it is spring. In the way we dream of spring, <laughs> it is not spring. <laughs> My family is all in Saskatchewan and they just got snow this past week. That's great, yeah. so, so I'm at least grateful for that. We're joined by Danny Longo. Uh, I'm Andre Pru, Maroki Tong. The trio of us together means it's time for us to talk about drinks. And recently we had a chance to get a sneak peek at what's going on for spring at the LCBO. Yeah, it was a great event. We got to go to the uh, new LCBO building i guess uh down on queen's key and got to try a whole bunch of uh ready to drink uh i guess beverages. yeah you know we've talked about canned wine we've talked about wine tetra packs we and i know one of the things in the drink industry that i think really only came to fruition in the last while and i or maybe i'm wrong maybe i maybe they've always existed but Ready-to-drink cocktails, I feel like, has kind of hit a surgence in the market, perhaps either because craft you know, craft cocktails are, are a thing now and people want the opportunity to take something lovely and mixed without doing all the work themselves. You know, this is one where I actually get to take my snob hat and take it off. The ready-to-drink category has existed for a long time, but I think it's the premiumization 
of it that we've just been noticing and thank God for it. Cause like, um, Maroki, I know your experience is different than Danny and mine, but if I'm sure I say something like Smirnoff ice to Danny, you probably have a bit of a visceral response to it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not, not crazy about the Smirnoff ice. <laughs> Maroki, Maroki um, did, did, did you have like experience with Smirnoff ice in your college years? I, I definitely did. I've also had Mike's Hard Lemonade. So I suppose that <laughs> would be considered a ready to drink. I guess I see, never really thought of it see, that and way. This, and this is why I had to take my take my snob hat off because it's just like this category has been around for a while. But then it was just like two summers ago, we got this crazy surge of White Claw. And it was almost like the branding, the packaging, everything was just like... You know, it there's definitely a cultural connotation that goes behind white cloth specifically. But when you take a step back from the shelf, and this was the thing I really appreciated about this this event was like taking a look at the whole range of the ready to drink cocktails. Because when I go out to a nice restaurant and their wine list is subpar, I am more than happy to order a cocktail. Because when I'm at home and I decide to visit my well-stocked bar, I'm too lazy to mix myself a cocktail. And see, I guess that's why I'm going to take the snob hat from you and stick it <laughs> on my head now. <laughs> because as someone who doesn't make cocktails at home, I certainly almost always these days get cocktails when I'm out because I love seeing the craftsmanship and the work that yes. someone puts in a cocktail. So to see it kind of slapped into a can um, doesn't quite do it for me. And perhaps one of the other reasons why is as someone who doesn't like my drink sweeter, oh yes, I find that a lot of the ready-to-drink cocktails lean on the sweeter side in order to have a greater public appeal. Um, I don't know. As the two guys who probably tasted more of these in the last few days, did you find that that's the case? Or have we leaned more towards dry mixed cocktails? It was totally hit and miss because some of them were very much on the sweet side. You know, I tried the uh, Jose Cuervo sparkling paloma and i liked it but it was so sweet but it was really good i guess it depends on what kind of mood you're in but then there were other ones um there was a i think it was ranch water yeah and it tasted almost like nothing just a little hint of lime and like water and lime and it was it was great and there was no sweetness to it whatsoever you know i was actually a little bit like this is this was the fun thing about about doing the journalist side of this if you're listening in the car and you hear me say the words ranch water <laughs> like when i say ranch water like maroki what pops into your head when i say ranch water <laughs> like a cowboy saloon <laughs> okay mud water I, I mean for me it's just like i pictured like i want i was wondering is this going to taste like a cool ranch dorito or what like i was just su surprised so i actually spoke with the people who were at the event and apparently like ranch water is a really popular thing in texas and out on the west coast and it's um it is sparkling water it is a little bit of Blanco tequila, so white tequila, not anything fancy, and a little bit of lime. And it was just like, it's low in alcohol. It was quite refreshing. It's the sort of thing where I could imagine it being like 25 degrees outside on a patio being a very dangerous beverage, even with low alcohol, where you could probably drink a lot of them and not realize what's in your system until you stand up. This is probably one of those moments where packaging probably matters a lot. And, you know, yes. given that we're 
on radio, you can only, you know, it's hard when you hear the words ranch water versus possibly seeing it packaged in a, you know, in, a, in an attractive can or a Tetra Pak. Was it in a can or a Tetra Pak? Do you remember? It, it was a green, or bottle? it was a green can with like that longhorn skull on it that mm, you just picture mm. with Texas. So like actually you, I mean, the, the clearly their marketing is like dead on for you that when I said ranch water that you picked, uh, picked picked like what the image was to you because like to me it was like i said like i was just like is this going to taste like ranch like ranch right. dress, like ranch dressing <laughs> right, right but i guess like going back to the point about packaging i think that really helps probably set the standard yes or the expectations of the consumer seeing it sort of on display as opposed to hearing these words come out of our mouths but i i i one of the things i tried to do was compare it against drinks that i normally enjoy and probably have a good benchmark for so i've mm. really gotten into margaritas recently because mm. i've been you know seeing my folks in arizona more often they make a mean margarita down there so you know, tasting the cut water tequila margarita, I found that that one was actually pretty darn good if I, you know, drinking it out of like a can. I, I was stunned. With, so there were two cut water products there. And uh, so we made a fancy spreadsheet of all of us putting our tasting notes there. And the Venn diagram between the three of us, it, it intersects at cut water. They have the tequila margarita and the rum hint mojito. And... Like Maroki, they they checked all the boxes. Like not as good as making a mar uh, margarita from scratch and doing it yourself, getting uh, you know, getting everything mixed and measured together. But if you're like me and you're too lazy to mix a cocktail for yourself, and it's hot in the patio, and you've got company, and you don't want to juice some limes, it's a good option. <laughs> mm -hmm. And maybe to like kind of close out the segment, we should bring up one that's almost a little bit different than all the other cocktails out there. But I also noticed in the in the Venn diagram of our spreadsheet, we all <laughs> made some marks about it. Was the the keg keg size Caesar? Because I think first of all, Caesar's quintessentially Canadian. We got to yes. talk about it. And two, it's a very savory beverage, or, or often even spicy beverage. And we clearly all enjoyed it, or at least. I should full on admit I didn't try it, but I would say that if I tried it, I probably would have enjoyed it. Actually, yeah, I'm looking at our, our spreadsheet here and I, I accidentally put an X there because I did not try it. I'm not a fan of Caesars at all. Oh, so, one of the ones that I did not try. Oh, <laughs> you know, what? and it's one of those things, too, where, you know, I'm throwing myself under the bus here. Mm -hmm. I was almost like it's a guilty pleasure for me. And it's one of those situations, too, where. It's important to drink responsibly and it's important to drink in moderation. But I mean, sometimes if you're having a night with friends, you may overindulge a little bit and Caesars and brunch, you know, replenishing those electrolytes. Yeah. The only thing that bothers me about like Caesars in a can, uh, both the Clamato one and the keg one is they are very, very salty. Um, definitely salty than if you make a Caesar from scratch, but also they're yummy, um, and I feel guilty saying it. So on my list, the note was it's a guilty pleasure. I I feel deeply compelled to try it after I saw your guilty pleasure note because, like I said, I am a lover of Caesars, and I would find that I would say that sometimes it's easier for me to taste something saltier and still find it on par to, let's say, a handmade cocktail versus something that just pushes sweet. One more thing that I got to try um, that is not on our list was the Moosehead Chilada. And oh, yeah. I have heard of these before. And it was basically, it was just a light beer with a little bit of salt 
and lime juice. And I thought it was delicious. It was refreshing. It was only about 4%. And I conflated. There's also something called a Michelada, which is the exact same thing, but mixed with tomato juice. So a chalada is just beer, salt, and lime. And I guess that would be kind of comparable to what people do with uh, Corona. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was really good. And I really enjoyed it. And the fact it's made by Moosehead too, like as someone who doesn't really drink Moosehead anymore, I might be inclined to give it a try. Well, Danny, I'm not going to hold you personally responsible for the lack of spring that we're having, but I'm hoping when you get back to the news desk on Monday, you'll have some better news for us going forward because uh, I'm definitely looking forward to stocking up on some uh, ready-to-drink cocktails that are not Smirnoff Ice. Sorry, Smirnoff. Yeah, I'm just a messenger. I don't, I don't make the weather. I just report it. <laughs> well that takes us to the end of tasting together so make sure you set your alarms for every saturday at 5 p.m and bring your empty hungry stomachs so that we can tell you about all the amazing food and drinks around the gta that you should be indulging in this has been tasting together on 640 toronto